If you enjoy our videos and podcasts and would like to support the channel, you can do this by helping us out monthly at patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview, which allows us to continue to create new content every month and grow as a channel. Thank you and enjoy. Yeah, Justin, what have you been up to since we last chatted? I mean, it's it's, it's yeah. a good couple of years now, but uh, what have you been up to? It is. Well, I've got a, a new job and a new career um, with uh, Joby Aviation in uh, the US. So probably not a company many people have heard of, J-O-B-Y. You can, uh, you can Google us. Uh, you won't find much online because uh, we're pretty secretive, actually. Um, uh, but I can tell you basically what we're doing, which is we're building electric uh, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft for urban air mobility, as they call it, which is a bit of a silly acronym, um, UAM, urban air mobility, but it's basically flying taxis. So, uh, yeah, all electric, battery-powered, uh, flying taxi, four-seater, commercial rated pilot in the front, uh, we're looking towards autonomy in the in the longer term, and, and in fact, you know, flying passengers flying with no pilot will happen sooner, probably than any of us think. But it's still some years away, uh, definitely less than ten in my estimation. Uh, so initially, we're building a uh, a fully normal, normally piloted aircraft uh, with a commercial rated pilot and four passengers. We're flying around cities, so you can get from Heathrow to uh, city of, uh, middle of London in in you know in in less than ten minutes. Uh, so it's a uh, very exciting. A uh, new world—it's science fiction stuff, really. You know, uh, it's amazing to think how, how close this all is uh, and how far technology is moving. But it is coming um, uh, within the next few years, uh, and we'll be seeing more and more of this uh, in the news as, as more and more companies uh, go public with it. Um, so that's what I've been doing. Very exciting. Brilliant. As you see the questions coming in, Justin, I'm going to ask you one question before you know everyone they start coming in. What yeah. was your favorite aircraft you've ever flown? You know, that's such a hard question to answer because <laughs> on the one hand, uh, my favorite will always be the Harrier. You know, it's like your first love and it is the most incredible airplane and the most fun to fly uh, and the most demanding to fly. Um, but aside from that, uh, I think uh, without doubt, it's still the uh, the F-50 is uh, still my favorite airplane. It's just the most amazing airplane, uh, incredibly powerful. Uh, incredibly uh, good handling quality, smooth and easy to fly. Uh, it's just an absolute delight. Brilliant. As you can see again, Justin, so just uh, if you can scroll up and start answering away and uh, yeah, enjoy, guys. Okay, fantastic. So uh, let me just go back to the top. Um, nice T-shirt. Someone says about you. Uh, good morning from San Francisco. So I'm very close to you, John. Uh, I'm just in, uh, in Santa Cruz down the coast from you. Uh, All-time favorite aircraft I just covered. Uh, how much time did I have in the F-16 before getting to the X-35? I'm trying to remember. It'd be some some tens of hours, um, 30, 40, 50 hours, somewhere around that amount of time, I'd guess. Uh, Restall of the Harrier and X stroke F35. So um, there's two ways of answering that question. In terms of performance, um, so the performance of the aircraft and, and the Restall performance, there's uh, chalk and cheese. So obviously the F35 is a supersonic fifth generation stealthy uh, afterburning fighter. Uh, which the Harrier was not, and in the design of the Harrier, in order to achieve uh, the V-Stall capability, there are some fundamental compromises in the mechanical layout of the aircraft and, and, uh, and the way it's structured, which, um, for example, needing to put the engine in the middle of the aircraft, because direct lift, you've got the four uh, posts on, uh, that, that come either side of the engine, uh, two at the front, two at the aft end of the engine, and those swivel back for, for forward flight. And so that means for vertical flight with them down, that, that engine needs to be pretty much in the center of the aircraft. 
And what that means is the center of the aircraft is quite thick and bulky. Um, whereas, of course, conventional uh, jet fighters since the 60s have had the, air, the engine towards the back of the, of the aircraft uh, so that you could have, um, uh, you know, all the other stuff you want and, and, and have the right fineness ratio to have a, a fairly thin fuselage. So the Harry has a lot of transonic and supersonic drag because it's big and thick in, in the middle. Uh, it's quite a good subsonic um, drag profile, but it's a very bad supersonic drag profile. Also, because you need lots of air at low speed, uh, dragged into the intake, you need big intakes. Uh, so the Harrier you know, has got those big elephant ear intakes either side of the cockpit, and those are sized in order to allow a large mass flow of air coming into the, into the intakes um, at low speed in the hover. Uh, whereas, of course, a, 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 a high-speed fighter has a much smaller intake because the air is, you know, when you're going 600 knots, there's quite a lot of air going down, even at quite a small intake. And so, but those big intakes in the Harrier, again, create a lot of drag at high speed. In addition, the uh, fundamental design of the engine means it's not a, it's, you've got no reheat, you've got no afterburner. Uh, it's a it's a you know dry thrust engine only. Uh, there were designs way back in in the 70s for uh, putting reheat afterburner into the front nozzles of a Harrier type engine, uh, but that was you know um, considered a, a real stretch. It was never developed. They did some work, but it was never developed into practice. So the Harrier has those, those three main things. It, its layout means that it doesn't have a very good drag profile, supersonically and transonically. Its engine uh, is non-afterburning, uh, and it's got great big draggy intakes. So the aircraft is great at you know, three, 400 knots, but it's not so good at 600, 700, 800 knots, where it doesn't obviously go that fast. Um, and what we did with the F-35 is, is is look at a concept that allowed us to have the vertical lift, allowed us to have vertical takeoff and landing, whilst at the same time giving us a conventional fighter layout uh, with a reheated, afterburning jet engine at the back of the aircraft and uh, all the other aspects of, of uh, supersonic aircraft design that, that, that are typical and normal. So the, the design was compromised and the performance of the F-35 was compromised far less by the uh, requirement to be able to do vertical takeoff and landing by the different configuration of engines. Hopefully that answers that question. And then just very briefly on the flight controls, well, this is chalk and cheese difference. So uh, the Harrier was mechanically flown. So the Harrier pilot has a, a manual throttle where he controls thrust. Next to the throttle, he has a nozzle lever where he manually controls the angle of the nozzles, the, the main thrust nozzles. And then he has a stick, um, of course. And so in, in decelerating to the hover, you had to first of all bring the nozzles back which, which brought them, which brought, bring the nozzle lever back, which brought the nozzles down, so you immediately start slowing down. As you slow down and lose wing lift, you'd be compensating, gradually moving the throttle up to compensate for the loss of wing lift as you slow down with increased thrust uh, until you finally get to the hover, and then you're controlling height with the, with the power, obviously, and you're still controlling the attitude of the aircraft with the stick. So just like a helicopter, if I want to go forward, I push the stick forward, and the airplane slides forward, and so on. On the F-35, after much research, which I was very privileged to be involved in, uh, research that was done in the UK on a, a fly-by-wire Harrier, it's called the VARC Harrier, V-A-A-C, Vector Thrust Aircraft Advanced Flight Control. Uh, so that aircraft had a fly-by-wire experimental cockpit, a conventional front cockpit for the safety pilot, and so we could we could iterate the, the, the fly-by-wire controls very quickly, um, and the conventional cockpit in the front, that was the safety cockpit, and so we didn't have to worry if our flight control strategies were not very good, or even dangerous, or there was a bug in them because the safety pilot kept us safe, which meant we could move things very quickly, and we developed over a period of some years the advanced control concepts that we have in the F-35 now, which make it very, very simple. And essentially, we call it unified control. It was um, developed by a man named Peter Nicholas way back in 1980 at uh, the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Bedford, was where the idea came from. 
but quite simply, I've got a, a go fast, go slow lever. You might call it a throttle if you like. If I push forward, I go faster. If I pull back, I go slower. And I've got an up-down lever on the stick. So if I push forward, the, the cows get bigger. And if I pull back, the cows get smaller. Uh, and that sounds pretty, pretty, pretty much like a normal airplane, doesn't it? And that's what we have in the F-35 is we use the computer to, to make a normal piloting action uh, the same whether you're at 500 knots or 5 knots. And that has made it much, much simpler to fly, along with some other things that I can talk about if you like. So they're very, very different aircraft, and hopefully that, that covers it. Uh, let's see. Um, I have not flown the F-35, no. I was only flown the X-35, uh, and there's quite a few differences between the two. Uh, the X-35 was a prototype uh, concept development aircraft for... Um, uh, and it had some, some core new technologies, which is why it's designated as an, as an X airplane, um, uh, including the flight control strategies and, um, uh, more importantly, not what I've just been talking about, actually, but this idea of nonlinear dynamic inversion, which is at the core of the flight controller. That was very, very new uh, and is now becoming mainstream, but um, that was one of the, the big experimental aspects. And there were, there were others, too, the lift system, obviously. Um, but inside the cockpit, it, there was no weapon systems. Um, the flight control strategy was not the same as I've just described for vertical takeoff and landing. It had a Harrier-style flight control system for takeoff and landing. All of that work was, was in, integrated later into the F-35, uh, so very different. Uh, if you couldn't have flown the Harrier first, what would you like to have flown? Uh, well, apart from the F-15, uh, in the UK inventory, um, I'm not sure. Uh, the Lightning, but I was a little bit, even I'm too young for the Lightning. Um, so I don't really know what to say within the UK inventory if I hadn't flown the Harrier. Probably the Jaguar would have been my second choice. Um, let's see. Uh, loads of, sorry guys if I don't get your question. I'm a little bit scrolling through them because there are lots. Uh, what do you think of all the F-35 trolls? Uh, yeah, it's interesting. The F-35 program has uh, suffered a great deal uh, of um, suboptimal I want to be careful what I say in a public environment. There have been a lot of challenges in the F-35 program, uh, which have led to higher costs and delays and so on. Uh, I don't want to as assign blame. It, that just is the case. Um, it's not all gone smoothly, I think anyone would say. However, what you've got at the end of the day is a phenomenally capable aircraft. It may have turned out to be more expensive than planned. It may turn out to be later than planned, but it's phenomenally capable. Uh, aircraft and uh, really, you know, a world-beating aircraft. And of course, the costs of ongoing maintenance and ongoing weapon system upgrades, those costs are mitigated across, you know, all the thousands of users or thousands of, of airframes and, and multiple users. And so it's going to continue to lead the way because you're spreading costs of ongoing development. And that's one of the challenges in a fighter program is uh, not just the cost of initial development, but you need to keep updating the weapon systems and the radar systems as technology matures. And those costs will be spread. So I'm a big, big, big fan of the program for those reasons. Uh, the other side of the troll uh, trolls on the F-35 is that, well, they say that the performance is low. You know, the F-16 goes faster, it turns tighter, etc. cetera. Uh, and many of those things are true. Not all of them are true, uh, but many of those things are true. The F-35 was deliberately designed um, intelligently from, a, from, a, from the point of view of performance. So it was not taken as read that we needed to go 800 knots and pull 9G all day long or whatever. The studies were done saying, well, we could go, we could set our, our, our target at 650 knots or at 700 knots, 70 knots, 800 knots. What's the tactical and strategic benefit of the increased speed? So how important is it if I can go those extra 50 knots versus how much is the projected additional life cycle cost of building the aircraft and go that faster? So it's called 
cost as an independent variable. And the idea was that uh, we trade off the cost versus the capability. And that led to a compromise in some of the, the top numbers, the, the, the top speed, the rate of turn, et cetera. Those were compromised because being able to go those few 50 knots faster was not considered or is not that important. I mean, it might be for an air show, although the F-35 is pretty impressive in the air show. But so what a lot of these trolls don't, don't get is, is actually what is the tactical benefit of these performance numbers? And the F-35 was intelligently designed to weigh up that tactical benefit versus the additional cost. So I think a lot of people who criticize the F-35's performance in terms of you know, speed and, and turn rate and everything, honestly, I, I have uh, nothing but disdain for them. They, they don't know what they're talking about. Shall I be any stronger than that? I think that's strong enough. Uh, okay, uh, uh, I found some fuel left. Yeah, that's true, John. Yeah, uh, my first military uh, aircraft after training was the Harrier. So I went straight through training, which in my day was on the Jet Provost, right at the end of the days of the Jet Provost, uh, um, onto the Hawk, and then I went straight onto the Harrier from there. Uh, I've answered about F thirty five experience. Um, let's see. Yeah, F-15, great airplane. Um, how does it stand up today? Uh, I, I don't know. You see, so much of, of, of the capability of a fighter today is in its internal systems, in its weapon systems. The F-15 is actually a bit of a thug in some ways. I love it, uh, but it's a bit of a thug. It's, it's, it's big, heavy, and expensive. Uh, and so those are definitely some compromises. But still, you know, in performance terms, its performance is still right up there, definitely, uh, you know, in terms of, um, you know, uh, speed, thrust, turn, etc. Um, and in terms of the internal weapon systems, I'm, I'm not really up to date, but but yeah, I think uh, it, ha it holds up very well. The big thing, of course, that the F-15 lacks um, is stealth. It has a big radar cross-section, so radars can pick it up from a long way away. I have never flown the Typhoon, Alex, is uh, one thing I'd, I'd like to flown, and I never got the chance, actually, one way or another. I got close to it a few times uh, when I was a test pilot at the Boston Dam, but uh, never quite worked out, so that'll have to wait for one day uh, when or, or never. Um, main uh, advantages of the F-35 over the Typhoon are really in the weapon systems and stealth capability. So I think uh, it's, you know, I, I don't want to be disrespectful to the Typhoon, but uh, the, the F-35 is a generation ahead in all sorts of ways. Uh, typhoon is not a stealthy aircraft. But of course, the Typhoon will outperform F-35 in pure turn uh, and top speed and so on, as we, we were talking a little bit about that earlier, but that's not necessarily the most important thing. So Typhoon is not stealthy. Uh, probably less capable uh, weapons and sensors systems. Um, and uh, what else? Oh, yeah, and the other advantage, the F-35 has good slow speed uh, maneuvering performance, obviously, with postal. The F-35 will go up to 50 degrees angle of attack, which is very impressive. Uh, so the F-35 twisting rear nozzle, I. Uh, was it a copy of the Yak uh, restall capability? Well, it, in in some, I don't I don't know that I can't answer that question in any detail. Uh, obviously, conceptually, having a rear main thrust nozzle that, that rotates down, it was was pioneered by by Yak. And yes, I do believe there was a lot of interchange between uh, the Soviet or not with, with the Russians at that time and uh, Lockheed Martin and the the U.S. program in general. Uh, and I think they did get some data. I believe that's true. The degree to which the F thirty five weight. A35A is dynamically unstable. I'm not sure that I can give you a figure. Um, very close with speed at uh, supersonic speeds and aircraft stability increases. So, for example, the F16 I can speak about is, is, is more or less neutrally stable through the subsonic regime and becomes stable supersonically. Uh, 
but I can't give you a number for how unstable it was the F35. Yeah, so X35B controls compared to modern F35B controls, yeah, totally different. X35 had basically Harrier-style controls. It had a manual throttle, a manual thrust vector lever, which was swapped over. So in the Harrier, the throttle was on the outside, and the nozzle lever was on the inside, and the X35 was the other way around. So the throttle was on the inside, because an F16 throttle with a sort of horizontal hand, or a slightly canted hand, and so they couldn't put the nozzle lever there because it get in the way, so they put the nozzle lever on the, on the outside of the throttle. And that didn't create any problems but it was basically a Harrier flight control system. Uh, yeah, F-35 Stealthy, not Typhoon, that's right. Uh, oh, well, these questions are now shooting around. Um, uh, yes, I know my counterpart who flew the X-32 very well. In fact, he was staying with me just last week. Uh, we're still good friends. Uh, X-32, um, I think it had a lot of advantages and we can guess why it didn't win the competition. It was just fundamentally the wrong lift concept. It had direct lift like the Harrier. So all the thrust came out of the engine, so you could, didn't have any what's called augmentation. So augmentation, and an afterburner, a reheat is a form of augmentation. So you get take an engine that produces, say, 20,000 pounds of thrust, you put reheat on it, and you can get 30,000 pounds of thrust, for example. Um, you also get augmentation out of the lift fan concept that uh, the F-35 has. Because although you're not reheating anything, what you have is a more efficient thermodynamic cycle. I mean, you definitely need to get into your your, your, your thermodynamics, but basically you, you're, you've got a big bypass. So you know the big jet engines on, on airliners, they're massive, great intakes with huge fans. They're what's called high bypass ratio. So the, the jet engine in the middle is quite, is, is quite a small in terms of size anyway, produces a lot of excess power, produces some thrust that comes out the hot end, but produces a lot of excess power from the turbine that is used to drive that great big fan. And a uh, high bypass ratio, a great big fan with a small jet, turbojet, is more efficient, converts the same amount of fuel flow into a greater thrust than does a pure old-fashioned turbojet, which has no fan. It's just all the air comes through the, uh, the compressor, into the combustion chamber, through the turbine, and out the back end. That's a turbojet. But if you take some of the power that's in that exhaust and, with a, and put more turbines in to drive this big fan, you get a more efficient engine, you get more thrust. And that effectively is what happens with the lift fan in the in the F-35, is that you're taking the, the jet engine, the turbojet, in, in fact, it already is a turbofan, it has some bypass air, but only a small amount of fan and a lot of turbojet. And you're taking that and you're extracting some power and driving the lift fan up the front of the airplane. You're driving the lift fan with that additional power. And that means for the same amount of fuel, you get more thrust. So you get about you know, somewhere around 25, 25,000 pounds of thrust, I forget the exact numbers, out of the pure engine in dry thrust. If you bring the lift fan into place, you're getting somewhere in the 40s, 40,000 pounds of thrust. And so that meant you could have a much bigger airplane, whereas the X32 with a direct lift concept, the engine with no afterburner, you know, 20 or 30,000 pounds of thrust, whatever it is, that's all you're ever going to get about it. Get out of it. You've got no augmentation when you went to a vertical takeoff and landing mode. Uh, F-15, uh, what do you think about Turkey being awarded a contract for maintenance of the whole F-35 fleet and then being kicked off the program last week? I'm not going to answer political questions. And actually, I, I don't I don't have any, any comments to add to that. It's just one of those things. Uh, do you know the F, if, if the F-35 has designed top speed 1.6 is related in any way to that being a high-speed American fighter? No, I don't know if that's a, a question, Super Family. I, that's not a question. I, I, don't, I haven't heard that. I don't know that at all. Flat spin risk in the F-15, uh, it's relatively tolerable and it recovers. It was the F-14 that had a terrible, uh, a really bad flat spin that was 
not always recoverable, uh, which was actually one of the slightly realistic parts in the original Top Gun film. You know, Mayday, Mayday, Mavs in Trouble. Um, that bit, uh, that was slightly based on, on, on real things that could happen, and the F-14 could go into a flat spin. The F-15, though, uh, does spin, but it is recoverable, and it's quite spin-resistant now with the uh, modern flight controls it has. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to get these questions. Typhoon, we've all talked about Typhoon. Um, what's the most interesting project I worked on as a test pilot? Uh, I guess uh, the... Uh, I, I, I guess it's the X-35. I mean, that was a crowning, uh, uh, you know, really a really amazing opportunity for me. Right place, right time, very much, uh, and a great, great thing to be involved in something as, as uh, important and um, and experimental as that. But I and, and I've been I've been immensely lucky. I really have because I, I had the the VARC Harrier program, which I ran for for a number of years, uh, developing these flight control strategies for the F-35. I flew the X-35 itself in the middle. I had a, I went, I was on the VARC carrier, then I went to the X-35, and then I came back to the VARC carrier. Um, and the VARC carrier also was just an amazing uh, program to be involved in, you know, really, really important, um, really momentous in what we achieved, and uh, uh, a, a, an extremely rewarding, exciting program to be a part of. Uh, but now I'm actually uh, lucky again that here I am uh, doing something in sort of the, the tail end of my career, but um, I'm trying to be, uh, I'm not that old, but I'm quite old, and I'm getting a chance to do it all again with something equally or even more exciting, and now in the civil world, uh, with, with what we're doing in, in urban air mobility and, and vertical takeoff and landing taxis, electric taxis, which is just an extraordinary concept. So who, who can say between those three uh, really, really uh, fortunate opportunities I've had, which is the best? Uh, I'd almost like to think that what I'm doing right now is, is actually the most exciting, it's going to have the most lasting effects. On, uh, on human history. Uh, okay, uh, what next? Uh, AIM-120 uh, upgrades. Um, I don't really have knowledge to comment on that, uh, and if I did, I probably couldn't. Um, B-1 at low level, I've flown the B-1 at low level. Um, it's a great airplane. Ah, it's a phenomenal airplane, the B-1. Um, underrated, I think. Uh, you know, great payload, um, great range, and uh, uh, fly at low level like a fighter. I mean, it's slightly sluggish, but you can still fly about a 3G limit with the wings swept back, and you can take some. You could take some massive number uh, payload. I think um, you know 40 odd tons of of, of, of bombs of, of um, payload. You could take coast to coast from Los Angeles to Washington D.C., bomb Washington D.C., and fly back to Los Angeles. All of it at low level and point eight Mac. I mean, it's just the most extraordinary, extraordinary airplane. Um, and yeah, it can be maneuvered at low levels. So not quite like a fighter. It hasn't quite got the roll rate. 3G is not that much, but 3G is a reasonable turn at low level, not a very fast one. So really, really extraordinary airplane. Uh, stability speeds for the F-35. There, there's no such thing really as stability speeds. Um, F-22 compared to F-35. I've not flown the F-22. Uh, I'd love to. My friends who have flown both um, say the F-22 is just the, the pilot's airplane. It's the... Um, uh, from a piloting point of view, I think the F-22 is is therefore uh, a better airplane. It's certainly got the perfor higher performance, speed, turn rate, etc., and even better high AOA maneuvering than the F-35. Extraordinary airplane, uh, and I've been told it's it's the one. If you ever had one airplane to fly as a fighter pilot, it'd be the F-22. But sadly, I've not had that opportunity. Um, so as soon as I scroll on these questions, it shoots right to the bottom. So I'm I'm probably missing some. <clears throat> 
trying to scroll back to where I was before. Okay, I've got back to where I was before now. Uh, not sure about the SU-35 and SU-57. F-22 is still better in super maneuverability. I'll take you away for it, John. Uh, I'm sure how many Russians will build. Sorry, just going through. Not, Typhoon can do it 9G, 10G. Not many parts could cope with that for long. Typhoon's uh, G limit is 9G. Um, and you're right, it's very, very tiring on the pilots, but um, it's, it's doable with training. Um, I'm not sure what is the NGF program, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Red Bull pilots, yeah, great guys. Um, uh, I didn't ever do any training in Australia, but one of my uh, flight test engineers here on this program is Australian, so uh, he showed me how to drink for sure. Um, Sorry to any New Zealand guys here, and Australians for that matter, and Indians, about the uh, the cricket. Um, my sympathies with you guys, um, but only a little bit. Typhoon's fully maneuverable at the moment. Typhoon is a great airplane for maneuverability. What you've got to understand, guys, is that, 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 that the combat is not all about speed and turn rate. Uh, there's a lot more to it, and that's what you know, we were talking about, the F-35 trolls earlier. It's not all about how fast you can go and how tight you can turn. There are a lot more things that are more important, in, or equally or more important. Uh, safety margin for maximum hovering landing weight. Uh, okay, so you can take a very low thrust margin over. I'm going to answer that generically rather than for the F-35 in particular. I don't know what's classified and what's not, but what I can tell you is that you can, with a vertical takeoff and landing airplane, have a very low thrust margin over the weight. So you can, so that you could be hovering with about a three percent thrust margin. I, if I went to full power, I'd get about 1.03 g. So 0.03 g maneuvering capability is on the borderline, but that's just about acceptable. And um, of course, with F-35, it's burning fuel very quickly in the hover. So if you come into the hover with only a point, with only a 3% thrust margin over hover weight, you're quite quickly at 4% and then 5% because it's burning fuel very quickly. What do you like most about the F-15? Um, the two main things, it's, it's, it's power and maneuverability, and it's very, very good handling quality. So it was very comfortable and easy to fly, handled very well, nicely, and had immense performance. Um, F-14s survived, though, as related to the flat spin. I think F-14s have recovered from flat spins, but there have also been F-14s that have never recovered from a flat spin. How uh, mounted sight? Uh, does it affect your G-tolerance? Um, doesn't really affect your G-tolerance. Uh, neck strength and everything is it's acceptable. The sort of weights they brought helmets down to, you, you can handle that. Game um, course G, yeah. What fifth-gen programs other than F-35 do you think will have the most potential for seeing fruition? Um, I don't know. I'd like to think Tempest will uh, see fruition as a, as a British fighter. Britain did lose some good programs in the past. Yes, Britain has, Britain's history since the, you know, I've, I've reflected on this recently quite a bit, is that um, there's a book called Empire of the Clouds, which my friends have recommended to me, uh, and I would therefore secondhand recommend to any of you. And it was about the decay of the British um, aviation industry from the late 40s till, till recently. In the late 1940s, early 50s, Britain's aviation industry led the world by a margin. And, and when I say the world, our, our technology was more advanced than the Americans and the French uh, and the Russians, and of course everyone else was way behind. Uh, we had the top uh, aviation industry and aviation technology in the world, and roll on seventy years, and we've just thrown it all away. 
And the reason the reason I have never read Empire of the Clouds is I find the whole thing very depressing, and I don't want to spend read a book and be depressed even more. Uh, I think it's tragic. I think it's shocking. I think there are a load of factors. There's no one person to blame. There are lots of people to blame at lots of different times, and there's a good dose of bad luck in there as well. And I think it's tragic. Um, but uh, John Farley, a mentor of mine who died uh, just last year, um, about this time last year it was, I think. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've read his book, A View from the Hover. It's a great book. He talks about some of his early years. He started off as a technician, as an apprentice at uh, Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough, and, and just talking about the programs and technology and how we led the world at that time. And, uh, and then looking to where we are today and how the British aviation heritage has been, has been thrown away. Most recently, when Kinetic was formed out of the Royal Aircraft Establishment, uh, and I'm afraid I, I have no words uh, positive to say about Kinetic uh, at all, uh, and they have been the sort of final chapter in throwing it all away uh, through mismanagement and incompetence. Um, anyway, moving forward, I think there's there's a new there's a, there's a new there's a new beginning. There are some great new companies growing up in the UK from 2XL Aviation that I used to work for. A wonderful company. I think the Tempest Fighter is a wonderful program. I think we can do it as a country, and I think we should do it. Uh, and uh, there's Vertical Aerospace, one of the competitors of my company, Joby, that I, I work in the UK. There's Vertical Aerospace in Bristol that are pioneering uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing uh, for the, exactly the same industry as I'm working in now. And I'd like to think that we'll get it back. You know, that we'll, we'll reclaim some of our capability because fundamentally, the, the British nation is a is a top engineering nation. Uh, we've got some of the best uh, engineers uh, in the world, and we still have them as long as we can keep them in the UK and not have them like me. Well, I'm not one of the best, but you know, come work to a foreign company because uh, of the opportunity that was presented. So I hope we can get it back. But uh, enough of that. I'm, I'm patriotic, I'm afraid. So uh, for, for those of you who aren't Brits on the call, I apologize for that little rant. Uh, let's get back to the questions. Um, what aircraft past or present production or experimental that you haven't flown but would want to? I would like to fly the F-104 Starfighter. I think that is just the coolest airplane ever built in history. And I would even, I'd probably even put that in front of things like the uh, SR-71, which is obviously an amazing airplane, but I think quite boring to fly. I know several, uh, several friends who, who used to fly it. Uh, the F-104 would just be a blast to fly. And they are, you can fly them in, in the civilian world. There are some flying, so maybe when I'm very rich, I'll go and buy one of those flights. Um, are there any fifth-gen missiles, bombs, lasers, etc., on the way? Well, yes, lots, uh, but I'm really not an expert on those. I've been out of the military now a while, and if I was an expert, I probably couldn't really say much anyway. Um, Bruce Fires Fat Spin, Jet went down. Yeah, um, usually you can eject safely from uh, uh, spins. You've got no ejection seat. Uh, Emperor of the Clouds, yeah, okay. Someone talking there, Krieger. Um, let's see. Oh, the link single, uh, largest single cause of downfall British aviation is due to the fall of the empire and need to be the best. I, I don't know if it's due to the fall of empire. I don't, I don't want to go into it. It is probably symptomatic of the fall of empire, but not necessarily due to it. Um, let's move on. Sorry, this scroll button is just rubbish. Um, John Farley through the MiG-29. Yes, John Farley is a true legend and an amazing man and uh, should be long remembered. Uh, I did shoot some weapons. I never shot any weapons in anger. Uh, we, we do release weapons in training, uh, both practice weapons. So um, you get little sort of three kilogram practice bonds and made of plastic, uh, made of plastic about, about literally they're about this size with a, a tiny little charge in the front, which basically makes a flash when they hit the ground. <clears throat> we only use, release those on, on ranges. So you would go to the range 
were the little CVLS, it was called, or Sieverly, I thought we used to call them, carrier bomb light stores, I think it's standard for, which is a basically a, a bomb-shaped pod, longer than I can show you on the screen, uh, sort of six feet long, and underneath there it had four little positions that you could put these little practice bombs, and you could release them one at a time, and so you'd go off with, with two Sieverlys and therefore eight practice bombs. Off to a local range, but for me at, at Wittering, uh, flying the Harrier, it was a uh, whole beach in the, in the wash, and you would drop these practice bombs, obviously, uh, on the range, and um, you could spot exactly where they landed because they made a little flash. You wouldn't see that from the cockpit because you'd fly over, drop the bomb, the bomb would land underneath and behind you, but there'd be a range officer that would spot where the bomb lands and give you a score. Uh, I've also dropped um, and fired real weapons, so we'd sometimes go off to uh, the high-explosive weapons ranges, so uh, I dropped uh, 1,000-pounder uh, live high-explosive uh, bombs up on... Um, Right at the tip end, north end of Scotland, there's a range up there. It's a little island, which is basically a rock off the off the north coast. Uh, and you can drop high explosive on that and also shot the high explosive snib, uh, which are unguided rockets. Um, so I've done a bit of that. But never in anger. Never in anger. Uh, Christopher says, well said, uh, fellow patron, even though I'm Welsh. Well, I'm one-eighth Welsh, and Welsh is part of the United Kingdom. So it's, uh, it's Britain. Um, Tom Morgenfeld is a great test pilot. Yes, uh, Tom, of course, was my boss on the X-35 and is now a good friend. We're coming up, it's frighteningly, we're coming up on 20 years of the X-35 first flight, um, which is uh, next year. And uh, that's shocking. Uh, but we're going to have a big big reunion, big get-together. Uh, I did meet Eric Brown. Yes, another legend, another great guy, Winkle Brown. Um, Met him a few times. I didn't know him well enough to call him a mentor, but he did give us a lot of advice when we were developing the ship rolling vertical landing. Um, so this was a so the Harrier did what was called the rolling vertical landing, um, which is basically a jet borne maneuver. So you're, you're, the nozzles are pointing almost straight down, and you're flying almost totally on the thrust of the of the engine. But you've got forward speed somewhere around 50 knots ground speed. And in the Harrier, we used to carry 50 knots ground speed because it allowed us to land on a surface that was not fod-free. So the surface could either be soft, like grass or asphalt, or even could have some 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 um, foreign objects on it, fod, that if we landed vertically, the fod could be picked up by the by the jet uh, efflux and sucked back into the intake, and that would obviously damage the engine. So if we're landing on a soft surface, like grass or asphalt, or if we're landing on a fodded surface, we'd carry about 50 knots ground speed. And then you were just staying in front of the cloud of debris as you landed. You came down to land the cloud of debris being kicked up by the engine would just be behind the intake. And this idea emerged because you get a little bit of wing lift, as you'd imagine. You're at 60, 70 knots. In the Harrier, not very much. Um, in the Harrier, too, a little bit. But we didn't account for the wing lift that we got there. But in the F-35, you get a substantial amount of wing lift at 60, 70 knots. Not nearly enough to fly the airplane on, but some thousands of pounds of lift that mean you can bring some thousands of pounds more weight back to uh, a landing if you do a rolling vertical landing. So mostly on the jet thrust, a little bit out of the wing. Uh, and so the idea was developed in the MOD that we would use this to land on the carriers uh, at low forward speed, about 30 odd knots compared to the carrier, you know, 30 or 40 miles an hour compared to the carrier, 30, 40 miles an hour of overtake. Um, but with the wind over the carrier, the carrier forward speed in any natural wind, you might be flying at 60 or 70 knots airspeed at which point you get some, some reasonable lift. So we developed this maneuver. Uh, in fact, when I was working at Boscombe Down uh, on the VARC carrier, we developed the maneuver on the VARC carrier and in the simulator and looked at all the different um, challenges. It's actually quite a difficult maneuver to make safe because the airplane is very sluggish and you're trying to do a, a, a fairly accurate touchdown, fairly accurate flight path control. 
but the airplane, the flight path is responding very sluggishly. So you can quite easily get into PIOs, pilot-induced oscillations, where the pilot is out of phase with the aircraft, and ends up you know, crashing into the back of the ship or missing his spot. And so we uh, did quite a lot of work developing that. And uh, we talked to Eric Brown at, uh, at the time. Um, he was, uh, I was at a conference uh, interview, which he was at, and where I spoke to mostly uh, was the Society of Experimental Test Pilots, which is the, the, the international body. And he'd been invited, I think he was being honored that year as a fellow. Or, um, anyway, he was there and, and I was presenting with one of my colleagues from, um, one of my US colleagues actually, uh, I was presenting there and he was there and we were presenting about all this stuff and we did a lot of chatting with him. and. Um, uh, I was very fortunate, probably because of the quality of the speaker that I was speaking with, my, my colleague, we got the prize for best presentation at the dinner at the end of the thing. And uh, I remember as we, as our names were called out and we went up, um, Winkle looked over at me and, and winked and gave me a thumb, thumbs up, which was, uh, which was lovely uh, for a man like that. Uh, amazing, amazing man. Uh, what a, you know, I've been lucky in my career, but what a career he had. I'd love to have that one. Uh, let's see where we get to. Um, Uh, I'm sure there was consideration about the F-35 operating from grass. I'm not sure what is in the clearance right now. I don't know. Um, how do you get adjusted to the ejection seats? Uh, very easy. I mean, I've flown on ejection seats all my life. It was a different ejection seat in the X-35 than I was used to, but 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 not much different. Um, so it's really no issue. To, to one intense purpose, it's just the seat you get into, and in between your legs is a yellow and black handle. Uh, they're all pretty much the same. Um, Never took the X-35 outside the US, correct. Um, I think, how did the X-35 do in the low level? So I never flew the X-35 low level, um, but it would have done fine. The X-35 and the F-35 have very good handling as well. Uh, really first class handling. Uh, lovely, lovely airplane. I mean, you know, as good as the F-15, I just like the F-15. I don't know why. Yeah, in terms of favorite aircraft. Favorite flying moment to date? That is really tricky, but I think um, if I was going to pick one, I'd have to say my first flight in the X-35, which was a hover at Palmdale um, in uh, uh, the Skunk Works at uh, Palmdale, just outside Edwards Air Force Base. We had this this grid, this, we called it the pit, so um, the fairly small, I think it's 65 foot square, uh, big hole in the ground with a grating over the top, and what that meant is the jet E-flux would go down through the grating and be dumped away. So you could hover just off the ground but it was as if you were hovering at 30 or 40 feet. There was no ground effect. And ground effect is very significant with a jet. You get all of the thrust coming down, hits the concrete and, and bounces back up and it's all turbulent and hot and everything. So anyway, it was um, very early in the morning. I think we briefed at 4 a.m. or something because this was July in the desert. So we're at 2,500 feet above sea level in July in the desert. It's not the time you want to do V-stall because as the temperature goes up, the jet thrust goes down. Uh, and uh, Harriers, for example, very limited. So anyway, we flew. We literally took took off as the sun peeked over the horizon. <clears throat> so we briefed at some insane hour, like four in the morning. Big program like that, you know, that in the briefing there's 60 people in the room <laughs> because it's almost a, a celebrity event um, because it's so important. I was not the first to fly by any means. Simon Hargreaves, British Aerospace Test Pilot, was the first to fly in the hover. But anyway, I got my chance. Uh, actually, number three, the Marine Corps guy, because American program. My Marine Corps counterpart, uh, Turbo uh, Tomasetti, he flew next, and then it was my turn. But it's still a, a big, big event. Sixty people in the briefing room. You, you know, you walk out uh, with, with with butterflies uh, to this aeroplane that you've flown hundreds of hours in the simulator, but now you're about to get in a real, actual piece of hardware and be in sole control of a billion-dollar aeroplane and fly it. 
so there's a lot of lot of pressure and uh, a lot of nerves and just walking out to it you're thinking oh my goodness uh just what have, I, what have i let myself in for um and uh but of course once you get into the swing of things and then i'm up and i'm in the air of course you know that those sort of non-flying related nerves you know, drop away you're just getting on with the job and it's all working fine so that was that was great and i think probably uh, one of the most memorable moments uh, for sure okay oh, every time i touch this scrolling foo i see you there um how are you buddy uh let's see scariest moment in the harrier scariest moment in the harrier was when i lost my generator at night over the welsh hills in bad weather uh, so we uh in the in the GR7 and GR9, we had uh, a night at night low level capability. So we had forward looking infrared, which displayed either on head up display or on one of the head down displays. We also had night vision goggles and used a combination of infrared and night vision goggles to try and see your way through uh, to fly visually at low level, 250 feet and 420 knots, uh, you know, 450 knots for attack, uh, target attack. So yeah, it's nearly 500 miles, well, 500 miles an hour or so at 250 feet above the ground in undulating mountainous terrain. Um, it was quite scary, and it's particularly scary if you can't see what's ahead of you. Anyway, what happened was it was bad weather. So in the Harrier, we, we prided ourselves on being able to find a way through bad weather. You fly around the showers, you make sure you just have the minimum visibility to see through any any, any bad uh, visibility cases. And of course, the night it was compounded. It wasn't just the visibility, but it was the amount of lighting you had. Because even though the, the infrared looked at the heat generated, you know, infrared picks up heat um, differences between between the um, between the train and the head. Uh, Depending on the environmental conditions, you can get a better or worse uh, infrared picture. You know, if the if the heat signature from the tree and the grass field behind it are the same, you don't see the tree. They call it crossover point, and all those are the same. So infrared picture is better or worse, and also the, deteriorates with with bad weather. Uh, and the night vision goggles rely on ambient lighting, albeit they magnify the ambient lighting massively. It still relies on ambient lighting. Um, so the, the bottom line is it was a bad day the visibility was very poor and um when the generator failed i lost my head-up display and i lost my infrared and all i had was the goggles and the goggles at that time were, were not performing terribly well and so essentially i was at 250 feet 500 miles an hour in undulating terrain and then i couldn't see <laughs> i couldn't see the ground or anything much ahead so it was a bit scary the other problem is, and I've made an error, is I had not set up the cockpit correctly so that the, the emergency lighting, the flood lighting which runs off the battery, not the generator, was not turned up high enough. So not only did I lose the head-up display and I lose all my main instrument lighting, uh, but because I hadn't set up the backup lighting correctly, I basically couldn't see the instruments. I couldn't see the ground and I couldn't see the instruments. Um, I couldn't see the ground very well and I couldn't see the instruments. So uh, what I did was um, I could just see the ground well enough Put in a time. I was heading towards worse weather, so I, also we couldn't start the backup generator until we slowed down. I had to go below 360 knots before I could start what's called the APU auxiliary power unit. So I uh, put in a turn, desperately trying to keep sight of the ground using my night vision goggles. Pulled the throttle back about halfway. I couldn't see what the airspeed was, so I couldn't see the instruments. But I gauged when I thought I'd be below 60 knots, and then hit the APU switch to fire up the APU. And to my relief, uh, five ten seconds later, the APU came online, generator came online, everything came back. I was I was okay, but it was a scary moment, uh, partly self-induced by the not having set up the cockpit lighting properly. Uh, okay, let's see. Zero-length launch system versus short takeoff. Why not blast off in a jet using rocket boost or JTO? Uh, expense, complexity, um, and uh, uh, you know you're using rockets every time, so you've got to reconfigure the vehicle. So the beauty of a, of a vehicle like the F-35 is I can land vertically. 
I can re plug in a fuel, I can refuel and take off vertically uh, without any of that kind of complexity. And I think that's why those things were never pursued. There's probably some risks and danger and big rockets being strapped onto the side of your airplane and um, the uh, level of operational and logistical complexity of managing a system like that. Any combat mission stories? Uh, I never saw combat. Um, I uh, never dropped a weapon in anger, as I mentioned earlier. I did do uh, the Northern Iraq no-fly zone. Between the two Gulf Wars, I did two tours in Turkey where we guarded the Kurds that live in the northern part of Iraq. There was what's called the Green Line that was written, that was drawn across the Iraqi map. And north of that Green Line, no, although it was still part of Iraq, Saddam Hussein was told no military forces were to be north of this Green Line, and the Allies patrolled this from the end. So, we in our Harriers had a reconnaissance mission, so we have reconnaissance pods, and we're uh, daily, basically every day, we take have a day off occasion, but basically every day with the, the coalition forces, we're flying over northern Iraq, photographing the various military and other establishments to confirm that there were no weapon systems, no tanks, no surface air missiles, no aircraft, no helicopters north of this green line. Uh, and it was full up stuff. So we had uh, AWACS would be on station, we had RAF tankers, uh, there were French there, there were Americans there. There were wild weasels that uh, were for suppressing enemy air defenses. So wild weasels would search out enemy radars, fire a missile, would go right up the front of the radar. Those were old F-4s in those days, Americans. We had the French there in their Jaguars, providing a ground attack support capability. Uh, we had air defense, so we had F-15s there providing air defense, and F-16s there providing air defense and ground attack capability. So every day the aircraft would launch, I really don't know, maybe, uh, Maybe 50 odd fighter aircraft were launched pretty much daily and fly over all around northern Iraq in a wave, and then we'd come back in. And we'd, we and the Harriers would take, would take pictures. We'd also carry weapons of self-defense. And um, every now and again, we'd, we'd practice uh, a combat mission. So simulating, well, Saddam Hussein's now ignoring the West. He's brought weapons in. Now we're going to go and take them out. So we'd every now and again have one of these uh, combat practice missions. We wouldn't drop anything for real, but we'd, we'd go all the way through it. So the closest I got to, or the most exciting part of that operational tour, which is rather a sad event actually, um, was that in 1994, I think, uh, two um, Black Hawk helicopters, American Black Hawk helicopters, were shot down by uh, a couple of F-15s, uh, blue on blue, in, 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 by accident, obviously. And uh, I remember the day, uh, so those, these two helicopters were stationed in country, so they didn't come back to the base in Turkey where we were, which was, it was a long transit, we were a 400-mile transit to the border. But these two helicopters were there supporting the Kurds, there were some Allied Army personnel on the ground, British and American and French, you know, working with the Kurds, and these helicopters would transport them around and so on. And uh, one day, we so were going in, and we were a little bit later, so that all these aircraft were staggered through a period of time, so the event had already happened, and as we came in, we, we, we'd make, first of all, fly about an hour from, from our base in Turkey to the uh, Iraqi border. We'd go across the border, we'd plug into a British VC-10 air-to-air refueling tanker, we'd, we'd suck up to, to full gas, so we'd, we'd, we'd plug in, then we'd come off the tanker, we'd contact the AWACS and ask for um, words, so they called, they called magic, was the call sign the AWACS, so they magic words. And, um, uh, and I'll never forget it, the, the guy came back, the controller from the AWACS came back to us. So the AWACS, just so you know, is not only a great big radar, but is also the mission coordination. So sitting on that vehicle with all the uh, situational awareness from all the radars and sensors is, is, a, is a mission coordinator, or more than one of them. So the guy came back to us with Splash 2 Hines, uh, Northern No Fly Zone. I, two Hines have been shot down. Hines is, is a Russian helicopter, which the Iraqis own some of. Uh, so two Hines have been shot down in the zone that we were protecting. 
and so that was the first we knew about it and this maybe happened i don't know half an hour before uh so it was a sort of big gulp oh gosh this is for real you know Saddam hussein's on on the, on the advance so we completed our mission our recce mission and the radar warning receiver we had in the harrier was just so uh, the iraqis knew something was up it turned out to be not two huns it turned out to be two black hawks sadly that had been shot down by mistake but Iraq knew something was going on, and so they had all their all their radars that were normally turned off because they're frightened of the wild weasels shooting, you know, putting a uh, missile into the radar. They they were all on and they were searching us and watching us, and you know, so there's clearly something's going on. So you know the, the stress levels are up a bit. We finished our reconnaissance mission, and the AWACS said, um, "Can you can you find in reconnaissance the the Heinz crash sites?" They gave us approximate location for where they thought the Heinz had been shot down. And we then had to go and recce them. We tried, we, most of this was at medium level. So we were up at 10 to 15,000 feet, minimum of 10, baseline 15, to stay out of the way of any surface to air missiles that were man portable surface to air missiles. Uh, so we tried to find the target from 15,000 feet. We, we couldn't really see anything in that sort of mountainous terrain. Uh, so uh, we elected to go down to low level uh, to get a closer look. And of course, you don't want to be between the two. You want to be very, very low or very, very high. Nothing worse than being at a thousand feet where you're going to be picked off like a sitting duck. So we were down at low level, below 100 feet, uh, 500 knots, uh, and we found one of the two crash sites. Rolled our cameras onto them as we went past, took pictures, and then busted out of the out of the country again at low level. And only once we crossed the border into Turkey did we pull up. Uh, anyway, very sad. I remember going along to the uh, PI photographic intelligence cabin when they were developed. They developed that. This was back in the days of celluloid film. So these were cameras that didn't. It was before the age of digital cameras. They had to develop the film, and this came out. And I remember I, um, I was sitting in there looking at some of the images, the crash site, and a, uh, a Black Hawk pilot came in. And obviously, people were beginning to realize what had happened by that, although we didn't know. And he was looking at the wreckage, and he said, "Yeah, that's a Black Hawk." And uh, that was the first we knew. Uh, you, know, you could see some of the, the engine cowl. Remember the big triangular engine, well, the cowling that sits right above the cabin on the Black Hawk that was intact, sitting next to all this wreckage. So very, very sad. Um, but very, very memorable, so I relay the story as such. Um, family WW2 history. My dad was uh, a radar uh, system operator in the Royal Navy um, at the tail end of the war. He, it was, uh, he, only, he was like uh, 18 in 1944 or something, so he only saw the tail end of the war. Um, he used to love listening to his stories, so, um, which are all Navy rather than Air Force, so I won't, uh, won't tell them to you now. Uh, okay, how are we doing on time? Looks like we've got 10 minutes left and I do have to head off at, uh, on the hour. Um, F-35 has pioneered making little compromise for VTOL, the VTOL aircraft. Yes, I do believe that. I think the you, you're seeing other nations now looking at F-35 VTOL, uh, the Bravo uh, version, uh, to purchase uh, because of exactly what you said. We've now had much fewer performance compromises in, um, in field industry on fielding this VTOL capability. And so I think it's growing popularity, and we're seeing now in the civil world with the advance of technology, uh, what I'm doing now in electric uh, vehicle takeoff and landing and um, flying taxis, we're seeing that again this become more and more mainstream and will be become more and more mainstream. I think it was um, Henry Ford's way back in the early part of the 20th century said something like, you know, that aviation, and he was wrong, obviously, but it's an interesting perspective. He said aviation will never amount to anything uh, until an aircraft can, you know, hover like a hummingbird and the light like a bumblebee or something like that. I can't remember the quote. You could probably look it up. Um, but, uh, you know, he was saying, you know, until you can take off land vertically, aviation is nothing. He was clearly wrong. But what it's interesting to see is that actually the ability to take off a land vertically 
is is you know really that's what flying needs. That's when you have the complete flying machine, a machine that can that can take off vertically, fly fast, and land vertically. You look at the helicopter, uh, uh, and I'm sorry, Fu, for telling you this, but the, the days of the helicopter are limited. It is uh, an archaic device, and in due course, there will be no more helicopters. Uh, at least not in the way we see them now, because the helicopter is a fundamental compromise. It's a vehicle that's designed to hover, and uh, and a helicopter hovers very nicely, but it goes from A to B just by like sitting in the hover and then like hovering forward. I mean, fundamentally, that's what a helicopter does. It hovers forward. And so that forward part is, is massively compromised in all sorts of ways. And I'm being a little bit glib because I'm a fixed wing guy and uh, probably Fu can come back. I mean, Fu's one of my, my good friends in the helicopter pilot here uh, on the chat. I've just seen his name. Uh, here he is. Apology accepted, he says. It's why I'm working on advanced vertical lift as well. Good plan. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit uh, rabid anti-helicopter, so take my words with a pinch of salt. But, but I do believe that the helicopter is a fundamentally compromised engineering concept and, um, and will become less and less relevant as aviation moves forward. F-35 ABC, how different in maneuverability? Very similar. The C has a bigger wing and does have increased maneuverability as a result of that bigger wing. Uh, the A and B have pretty much the same wing. Well, they do have the same wing uh, and uh, very similar maneuverability. But I think the C does have the edge just on the, the slightly bigger wing. Uh, yes, very sad story about the back courts. It's terrible. And I also uh, knew the sister of one of the army officers killed who I saw a week or two ago. Uh, great. Okay, why, uh, Justin, why don't you uh, answer one more question and then we'll wrap up because obviously we know you're a busy man. So pick a question and, yeah, we'll let you go. All right, let's see. Um, I think we'll answer that last one. It's a good one, looking to the future. How much will future vertical lift uh, program, how much will that uh, be an improvement over current helicopters? And I think a, a lot. I think uh, a great step forward. And what we're going to see is the helicopter world evolving into the VTOL world, if I can call it that. Um, we're moving away from the fundamental concept of a helicopter with a tail rotor, a big single point of failure gearbox, and a, and a great big rotor blade with a retreating blade stall and all the other issues there. So I think future vertical lift is a, is a stepping stone towards the evolution and perhaps the merging of you've got a fixed wing VTOL and you've got helicopters that are, are, are going to be moving and merge into the new world of vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. How about that for a finish? Okay, thanks guys. Thanks very much. Bye bye.